You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. How you doing? Sick. Still sick. Well, uh, I mean, come on. Let's be honest with ourselves. One thing that people never told me about having children, especially small children under the age of five like we do, is when you got one in preschool and one in daycare, you really just fluctuate between degrees of sickness. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and as near as I can tell, everyone in town has this cold that I currently have. Uh, the one that lasts for like three weeks? Yes. Yeah. And it's just like the deep, hacking chest cough and uh, all kinds of congestion, sore throat. Now I got dual eye infections to go along with that. So, wow, you're uh, really taking it up a notch. I got the, I got the full... A mug of tea and some water here, so we're uh, we're fired up and ready to go. Do you need me to get you just like a big quilt to wrap yourself in? Maybe an iron lung, if I could just figure out a way to record this from some kind of full-body medical facility thing. I saw via Twitter that you went minivan shopping this weekend. Didn't just go minivan shopping. I bought a motherfucking minivan. What? I don't see a minivan Hashtag out there. Hashtag about that van life. Where's your minivan? It's still en route from Seattle. Oh, well. La dee da, Mister right. Rockefeller. Out there, gets his cars imported from Seattle. Damn right, it's gonna come with a full thing of Starbucks. I hope. <laughs> what kind of minivan did you get? Uh, Toyota Sienna. All right. Yeah, it's the only minivan available in all-wheel drive. Which Cadillac of minivans is what I'm hearing. I didn't know that we needed to go that route, but uh, when you live over here on the side of town, that the city trucks don't always plow. Uh, don't always the snow removal strategy in your part of town is hey it'll be spring eventually so yeah we didn't didn't want to get stuck right so we we got that coming uh i believe the color we got is pre-dawn gray okay so is that an effort to make you hate yourself just a little bit less having bought a minivan uh, oh i don't hate myself at all i am excited to start living the hashtag van life i am i'm pumped up about it frankly I told you about when we went to Iowa for my wife's uh, grandfather's funeral last summer, and we had a rented minivan, and it turned out to be the greatest thing of all time. Especially if you got kids. Well, I mean, let's be honest. We fucked up by having a third child. Yes. We needed a car that you could put three car seats in. Not an easy thing to do. You start looking around, and you quickly come to the realization that it's kind of minivan or bust. You can get an SUV with three rows of seats, but then you start thinking about getting the kids in and out of the car seats and yeah. how you're going to manage that. You don't want to do that. No. So, uh, hashtag van life. I'm all about it. I at guess this it's, point. it's either that or one of your children is just forced to become a homebody with like it or not. And you know, that, that might happen. Uh, this episode of the co-main event podcast is once again, brought to you by MMA pack, a subscription box service. We started telling you guys about last week that is uniquely targeted toward MMA fighters and fans. Over the last couple of weeks, I've had the opportunity to start emailing back and forth a little bit with Jeremy 
uh, the owner and founder of MMA Pack, and got to hear his story and learned that he's been an MMA fan since his buddy showed him Keith Hackney versus Emmanuel Yarborough on VHS cassette tape when they were kids. Yeah, you get hooked immediately. I mean, that'll do that. it, right? Yep. You watch the giant killer that's it, go that's... out there and, and ha- chop down Emmanuel Yarborough. That's like crack cocaine of MMA right there. I also learned that uh, Jeremy started training in MMA in high school and even had a fight scheduled at one time until he says, this is a quote from his email, my, my mother proceeded to guilt me out of my MMA career. <laughs> well, I guess that's why you, you need a mother around. I'm going to go ahead and say mom was probably right yeah. on that one, Jeremy. Uh, the most interesting part, to me at least, was hearing what led him to actually start this company. So I wanted to share a little bit of that with you guys this week. Jeremy writes, and I quote, What really prompted me to start MMA Pack was what happened after I graduated college. Uh, without trying to get too deep here, I stopped training, got fat, started drinking a bit too much and smoking way too much. I was just a mess. A couple, after a couple years of being miserable uh, and falling in and out of jaws, I got back into training and I can sincerely say it saved my life. At the same time, I realized something else. This shit is super expensive. Paying 60 to $80 for nice MMA gear is just brutal, let alone all the other stuff you want to get better at. I found myself dropping tons of money on gear to train in, uh, clothes to wear outside of training, supplements, and everything else. I knew there had to be a better way, so I started MMA Pack. But what is that better way? Ben, tell them how it works. Well, Chad, you just go to MMAPack.com to sign up, and then for the low price of $39, they'll start sending you a box full of around 100 bucks worth of MMA clothes, gear, supplements, and accessories in the mail every single month. They send out big brands like Roots of Fight and Fuji, but also include smaller, independent brands, so people who subscribe get unique and high-quality training gear for for training and for everyday life. Right now, MMA Pack is offering a pretty sweet introductory deal exclusively for CME listeners. Just go to the website MMAPack.com right now uh, to check out the particulars and enter the promo code COMAINEVENT, that's all one word, to save 20% off your first pack. Again, that's MMAPack.com, just like it sounds, the word pack is P-A-C-K. Ben, Dundasso shirts are back. Just in time for spring. Why are you doing this? I don't do it. Other people do it. I have nothing to do with it. Okay. They, they write into Cotton Bureau and request that they bring the shirts back. And when they get a certain... I mean, people are just doing it to mess with me now. Yeah. But once they get a certain amount of requests, they, uh, they put them back up there for sale. But I guess once this sale ends, then they're gone for good. This is, is that definitely the me? last time. <laughs> this is definitely, definitely the last time. So if you don't have your Dundasso shirt and or hoodie, you can go to uh, Cotton Bureau dot com slash products slash dundasso and order that up today send it straight to your house what's the update on that sleeveless vest i asked for i think you can go ahead and cut the sleeves off if you uh ordered a hoodie you could cut the sleeves right off and then not only would you have a sleeveless vest ben but you would have a hood on that bad boy that you could flip up at just at any time anytime you wanted i'll think about it we got music again this week from our guy Dion Rodriguez, a producer out of Deltona, Florida. Thanks to him for that. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. That's the word beats with a Z. dbeats7. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, 
We're starting to think that Kelvin Gastelum might be really good at fighting. And the dude is only 25 years old, so worst case scenario, he just sits back and waits for everybody else in the middleweight division's top 15 to die of old age. And in round number two, speaking of old age, the most surprising thing to happen at Saturday's UFC Fight Night 106 was Vitor Belfort admitting that maybe it's time to set an end date for this thing. And in round number three, just how trash is UFC Fight Night 107? We'll discuss all that, plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us this week from John Van Note, who writes, How about that display from Shogun Hua? Coming into the fight looking like he was trying to challenge Dan Kelly for his dad bod moniker, and then getting his third straight win over Jean Perro. This is his nickname, Nose Chris Weidman Volante, a.k.a. or via Rock'em Sock'em. So what does this all mean? Is Shogun ready for better competition? Or is he closer to riding off into the sunset before he uh, permanently falls into the sunken place? Uh, rhetoric, says at the end. Okay, in fairness, one thing we should say about Shogun Hua's dad bod is that Shogun Hua had the dad bod when he was 21. Uh, he's all, That's just kind that's of the true. man's physique. That's true. It's not like a Vitor Belfort... Uh, pictorial of diminishing returns right like if anything you could make a fairly strong case that shogun hua has the most unchanged physique in mma wow also it helps that he always wears the same style of shorts even though those shorts have a bad habit of becoming kind of baggy diaperish look at some point in a, in a long fight and still he is undeterred well, yeah, and he's, he has absolutely won three in a row now in that UFC light heavyweight division dating back to UFC 190 when he beat Antonio Rogerio Nogueira via decision and then followed that up with the split verdict over Corey Anderson in this past Saturday. Went out there and got the W over Jean Vellante. So his, his first three-fight winning streak since he came to the UFC. Wow, that's a pretty good stat. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily over uh, murderers, I guess, giant killers, I guess you could say. Right. One okay. of the things that struck me, Ben, about this weekend's action, and I know we'll talk about uh, Vitor as as we move along in this show, but obviously you've got uh, this fighting event happening from Fortaleza, Brazil, so the thing is stacked with uh, Brazilian talent that they think is going to draw fans in the, to the live show. I was struck by the difference in matchmaking between Mauricio Hua versus Jean Vellante and Kelvin Gastelum versus Vitor Belfort. And I'm not sure you can draw a whole hell of a lot from it, and I don't know that I want to read too much into it, but it's weird to me that you go out there and you give Shogun Hua this fight against Vellante, which uh, I guess you could say is more evenly matched than what we got in the main event, but seems like seems like an effort to get Hua another win, to do everything you possibly can to get him a guy that he's going to be competitive against. And then in the main event, you got Vitor Belfort, who's arguably the biggest Brazilian draw on this thing, and you serve him up with a fight against Kelvin Gastelum, where Belfort ends up being one of the longest shot underdogs on the card and obviously goes out there and gets, gets finished in the first round. So I don't know if it's a situation where uh, Vitor Belfort asked Sean Shelby to hang his coat up at some kind of UFC <laughs> uh, get get together, and like, therefore show him. has a little comeuppance coming yeah. his way, or if uh, Shogun Hua is just a a fan favorite, a family favorite around the office. But it just seems like a different treatment to me for uh, two aging Brazilian stars on this card. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe some of that is just when you look at what the realistic available options for both of them are. Maybe 
Shogun Hua has a little bit better of a lot to choose from there. Um, and let's not act like the way this fight was going, it would have been unthinkable for uh, Vionte to knock Hua out. I mean, no, he, he, he wobbled him he there in the first did. round. Uh, and, you know, I was curious after this fight, did you hear Shogun's remarks where he was basically saying, like, that's the kind of fight I like to have. I like to have uh, one against a guy who will come out there and fight and not run away from you or, you know, try to uh, basically rock him, sock him right down Shogun Hua's alley. And he almost considers it bullshit if you will not do that with him. Uh, and yet it seemed like at various points, either one of these guys could have fucked around in one or lost it. Right. It, I mean, you, uh, Shogun Hua goes out there and gets this win over Volante. It's not like we're running down the street screaming Shogun Hua is back, right? Like, it seems pretty obvious what Shogun Hua has been up to these last three fights and then this win over Jean Volante. Like, uh, you know, that light heavyweight division is not as deep as they get, but it seems like he's out there kind of scratching out wins over somewhat mediocre competition. It's not like this sets him up to vault back into the ranks of, uh, you know, talking about fighting Anthony Johnson or something next week. Because, oh, God. I don't, even, I don't even want to think about that. Right. We want, we want to keep Shogun Hua alive and well. Again, amazing to me that Shogun Hua is somehow only 35 years old. How is that possible? It's, it's not possible. I assume he's lying about his birthday. <laughs> like, a, like a Cuban little leaguer. Next, uh, next question this week comes to us from Logan Smith, who writes, Edson Barboza is a god of violence. Which is worse, being spin-kicked in the head and freezing like a fainting goat, or being flying-kneed John Henry-style, quote-unquote, dead before you hit the ground? I'm going to say that this one was worse, not just because of that, but because Benil Dariush was winning every second of that fight, pretty much, right up until that happened. He was doing exactly what you would tell somebody to do, Especially somebody like him, like exactly the game plan you would map out for him against a guy like Edson Barboza, uh, Eddie Barbituitz, as uh, he has been coined by, by Jessica Hudden, all our friend, leg kick TKO. All right, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Uh, you know, not letting him get set, get that kicking game going, uh, stand after him just via work rate and keeping him from really getting his offense moving. And he's taken that fight from him little by little and then bang, one knee. He, he just times it perfectly, and that's it. It's over. That's got to be worse. Feeling like you were winning. You made one mistake. The guy caught you. Uh, that even though you know they're both going to end up as highlights that the UFC will show just to infinity. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the, the big reasons you got to feel bad for Benil Dariush out here is that like not only was he uh, doing a great job implementing the game plan, but it also... I don't know. It was, it was, he was like, he was trying so hard, you know, and he was doing such a great job. And he was, looks like he was going to coast into the third round at way ahead of Edson Barboza on the cards and then bang, puts him to sleep with that flying knee, uh, which gives Edson Barbosa now also three wins in a row here in the lightweight division. Uh, Anthony Pettis, Gilbert Melendez, and, and Darius now part of that, uh, win streak. His last loss was to Tony Ferguson, uh, in a fight I think Edson Barbosa was affording himself quite well in, right? Going into uh, midway through the second round, he gets caught in a Darce choke there. Uh, and I know that it seemed like he was trying to interest Tony Ferguson in doing it again, brother. Uh, seems like Tony Ferguson might have bigger fish to fry, at least for the moment. But Edson Barbosa, Ben, I don't know if you want to make the case that he's finally putting it all together at age 31 uh, there in the UFC. Uh, but he does seem to be, uh, you, you know, he's obviously on this run of success dating back to April of last year, but it seems to me like he's still kind of a lot of times using this fighting style of exactly what you saw against Darius, where 
uh, it seems like he's losing, and then he he knocks you out and wins, which is uh, it's a good strategy until you can't get the knockout, right? Yeah, well, on paper, if you look at it and you say he beat Anthony Pettis, Gil Melendez, uh, and then this knockout over Benil Darius, you say, all right, Edson Barboza is really on a run. But especially from what you actually saw in that fight, I think if you get up against the higher level competition in that division there are gonna there are enough people watching these fights and seeing like okay that was exactly what you're supposed to do against a guy like barboza except for the part where you dive into a flying knee right so i'll just not do that part and i think that you probably still get beaten by some of those guys if you can't figure out a way uh to to make that ge- that game plan against you not work and so far i don't know if we've seen him show any ability to do that then Benil Dariush is kind of uh, an interesting case here in the in the lightweight division. I feel like he's a dude that if we started talking about the killers of the lightweight division, you would not immediately jump up and shout Benil Dariush. But like, obviously, at 27 years old, he's a really goddamn good fighter in this division. And and at least coming into this fight against Edson Barbosa, he had the one loss against Michael Chiesa in April 2016. But other than that, had put together a shitload of wins in a row. Uh, and was one of those guys who kept doing things like beating Michael Johnson by split decision uh, in fights that you kind of felt like people thought Michael Johnson was going to win. Then he gets a little bit of momentum going here and and fucks around and gets knocked out cold by Edson Barbosa, which again is just uh, you know the kind of thing that makes you feel bad for Benil Dariush because he seems like a real a real solid competitor in that division. And yet, like I said, kind of under the radar, and then you go out there and you get knocked out in this fight, uh, it feels like you you really run the risk of being overlooked unless you can go out there and like put together another sustained run of success against people that we know. You want to do me a favor and look at Benil Dariush's Wikipedia photo? Uh, yeah, I was just looking at it. So for the kids at home, mm-hmm. the photo pictures Benil Dariush wearing a T-shirt that says Benil Dariush on it, and the T-shirt depicts what I assume is supposed to be either Benil Dariush or ah, Ringo yes. Starr. Yeah. Uh, like a drawing. And in the drawing, it's like a purposely flat, emotionless expression on the face of the drawing. And then Benil Dariush's actual expression in the photo where he's wearing that T-shirt is like 5% happier than that. But not much more than that. It's a cool move to wear your own shirt. It right? looks like he's been forced into it. It looks <laughs> like it was his birthday. Somebody at the gym was like, hey, I made you this shirt. Go ahead. Put it on. Put it on. And he was like, all right, I guess I don't want to be rude. I'm going to put on the shirt. And they're whispering between each other, we're going to make it his Wikipedia photo. <laughs> he doesn't know, but we're going to put it on Wikipedia. Next question this week comes to us from David Golden, who writes, it's been, a bit since, it's been a bit since I emailed you, but I didn't want you guys to do the podcast this week without mentioning the Juicier Formiga and Ray Borg fight from Saturday night. On a night when some really exciting fights, a night with some really exciting fights, this one kind of stole the show for me. The exchanges on the feet were excellent, the scrambles were stupid fast, and Brian Stan's almost giddiness on the call just had me feeling it. How about you guys? Uh, yeah, Ben, I felt the same way, uh, not only because Ray Borg and Juicier Formiga uh, went out there and had a crackerjack fight that Ray Borg ends up winning by unanimous decision, but also because we got to see that rascally Juicier Formiga illustrate some black belt Dundasso technique with just a crazy fence grab in this fight when Ray Borg was on the verge of taking him down. Yeah, that's the Nova You Now special right there. Just uh, a handful of fence. Yeah. When you see the fence bend inward. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, uh, you know, of course... 
face no real consequences for it other than a referee telling him to stop doing that. Uh, but it enabled him to get into a good position on the ground. And that's, you know, that's the same move that uh, your boy Jose Aldo used uh, when Chad Mendez was trying to take him down. The old Nova Nunez special and then turned around and kneed him in the head, knocked him out, won the whole damn fight. Uh, which is, I believe, still stands as one of the prime examples of the supremacy of Dundasso. What are we to make now, Ben, of Ray Borg, a guy who is just shockingly young at 23 years old? The Taz Mexican Devil now, is see, his nickname. I, well, I feel, that, I feel like that nickname is A, fitting uh, for his fighting style, B, um, as we've discussed before, I, when somebody works in like either their nationality or like racial identity or something into a nickname, um, I, I, I can appreciate that. It's unique. We can't all be nicknamed the Pitbull, so I kind of like it. Um, and yet, every single time I am reminded that that is Ray Borg's nickname, I get a little disappointed. I feel like you just you got a Star Trek TNG thing just sitting there. You're teed up for it. You could just claim a bunch of nerd fans immediately, which is like 70% of all MMA fans, and you just you you pass it by. I feel much the same about Benil Dariush as I do kind of about Ray Borg and that if you started talking about the flyweight division, like the first name out of your mouth is not going to be Ray Borg is creeping on a come up. But at the same time, he kind of is, especially when he goes out there and beats Formiga, who coming into this fight had been ranked number three, uh, and is you know aside from uh, uh, a very short list of people, is like one of the one of the guys in that top five, top ten that hasn't already been beaten by champion Demetrius Johnson. So obviously a big win for Ray Borg uh, to uh, to to get this W over over Formiga. Uh, and, and, you know, he's a guy who probably could be staring down the barrel of a title shot before too long simply by virtue of the fact that we're running out of guys for Demetrius Johnson to beat up in that top ten. Yeah, that's kind of what I wondered after this is what what does it take at this point? Do you just go with the strategy of hanging around and not losing and waiting for the UFC to go, well, shit, what are we going to do here with Demetrius Johnson? Okay, I don't know. Let's just go down the list and see who picks up the phone first. Uh, or... Do you need to just craft your own path to the top? Pick somebody out, call them out, make a big deal out of it. See if you can actually just force some attention onto yourself. That's a good damn question. I mean, it's not going to be as long a wait as you would have in some of the divisions. Like, if your strategy now is to wait for DJ just to beat up everybody else, well, you're almost there. Yeah. And especially if you got time to kill, like Ray Borg does at 23 years old, uh, might as well just wait for them to get around to you, sitting at home making your Borg costume to wear out to the cage There you go. next time. See, maybe that's what you're hoping, actually, is that if you can wait a couple more years, you know, slowly kind of get yourself there, and maybe also let Demetrius Johnson get, hopefully, a little older, maybe even a little slower, if there's any fairness in the world, then maybe then you have a chance of picking him off. Because I think if you put... 23-year-old Ray Borg in there with Demetrius Johnson right now, you might end up just ruining a prospect. Yeah, I don't. like I said, the, the list of guys who might fight Demetrius Johnson is getting shorter. The list of guys who we think might beat Demetrius Johnson, nearly non-existent still at this point. So maybe a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for Ray Borg. Uh, next question this week comes from us from Josiah Renaden, who writes, so I'm sitting here sipping some wine, smoking a fat cigar and watching UFC fights out of way too many syllables to remember Brazil. And earlier 
Kevin almost looks too good getting off the bus. Lee said everyone wants to see him versus Nermi. If, by everyone, he means himself and his loved ones. That leads me to this question. Is it better to be reasonable with your post-fight demands rather than reaching so sky-high that you end up sounding silly? What if Lee called out number six, Michael Johnson? Is that 15 seconds of fame wasted if you just say, please fast-track me to the top, even if it doesn't make any sense? Discuss, my friends. This is a good question, because I think we've talked before about some of the ways that fighters like to go with their call-outs, which, um, while we're all four guys calling somebody out, there are some ways you know when you see them. Like, for instance, when somebody does like the uh, Edson Barboza thing and tries to get a rematch with someone that only makes sense in their minds because they lost it and they want to you know, get that one back, as they say. And everybody else is like, nope, we saw that one. The other guy has other stuff to do anyway. Think about something else. And I also think that while you get a little bit of brief uh, attention by bringing up a name that everybody knows, kind of like, like Nermi here, it, it always backfires, I feel, because the first reaction is people go, wait a minute, you're, you're calling out who? And it just reminds them that you're not there. You're not at that point. Uh, that that other guy is at. Like the same way like people calling out Conor McGregor or something when they're just not anywhere close to that. Nobody has that fight on their radar. Or what was the dude a couple weeks ago who called out Mayweather um, after his fight? And it was just like, come on, man, let's be serious here. Like it gets you, a, like a, people perk their ears up a little bit, but only long enough to realize, oh, no way, that's, that is out of the question. I think you're way better off calling out somebody lower down on the totem pole, which you know maybe brings a little less attention than the other name, but is a realistic fight to happen. And I can get interested in almost any pairing if you come at it from the perspective of, I've got this guy in my sights, I really want to fight this guy, just make up a reason why, and you can, you can build from there. You can get us interested in that from there. Yeah, I think especially if you're Kevin Lee, who is a guy who is really young still, 24 years old, is 8-2 and two in the UFC, uh, is kind of unfortunately in that lightweight division where there's just one million dudes all trying to get ahead. But you look at, at, at Kevin Lee and, you know, as Josiah Renaudin said here, looks good getting off the bus, uh, you know, the uh, nicknamed the Motown Phenom, looks like a dude who you can imagine being a top-level MMA fighter. And he can talk a little bit. Yeah, he got a little bit of star potential going on there with Kevin Lee, I think. And if you bring him, bring him along the right way, he's on a four-fight win streak now. He's got stoppages in his last three. And then he gets on the mic and calls out Habib Nurmagomedov, which even for, for me, a guy who I guess you can say is somewhat rooting for Kevin Lee to kind of you know assert himself in this division, you just you kind of laugh at that when you see him have that. Have that or when you see him say that, just because that's so outlandish, that I do agree that um, you're kind of wasting your, your time on the mic there, especially, you know, you're, Kevin Lee is completely unranked in this division. Uh, he just beat uh, Francisco Trinaldo, who obviously was ranked, but I think Josiah Renaudin hits it right on the head. What you want to do is you want to call out somebody in that, like, Edson Barbosa to uh, uh, Michael Johnson like Benil Dariush six to ten range where you can say, look, I'm eight and two in the UFC. It's a crime that I'm that I'm not ranked. Give me one of these ranked guys and I'll show you what's up. Yeah. You don't you don't get on there and say, give me the number one guy in the division. That's right. The number and, one contender. And you can you know, if you make it into some kind of rivalry fight, we are always interested in that. We never stop being interested. I mean you just tell us 
Hey, Edson Barboza asked me to hang up his coat at the Christmas party. Take the Chad Dundas strategy. Uh, and you know what? God damn it. I want to I kick his face in. All right. There you go. We're interested. Yeah, a little bit too much shooting for the stars there, if you're Kevin Lee. Uh, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days when we're not recording the podcast. News always happens. Stuff always breaks. It's short. It's informative. We'd love to tell you that it's funny. If you get it, you decide it's not quite your cup of tea, it's also really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, Kelvin Gastelum goes out there and does exactly what he needs to do against Vitor Belfort in the main event of UFC Fight Night 106 on Saturday, live from Fortaleza, Brazil. Gets his third win in a row and his second in a row at 185 pounds, following up his impressive victory over Tim Kennedy back at UFC 206 with this first round TKO uh, win over Vitor Belfort. Gastelum came into this fight as a pretty heavy favorite, so... Uh, I'm not sure anyone can say that they are surprised that he pulled off this win, but at the same time, pretty dominating stuff from Gastelum in this. Didn't even really look phased by uh, the old cliche we always talk about with Vitor Belfort, where he's going to come out and, at least for the first round, have that aggression and that hand speed that he's been known for since he came to the UFC in 1997. Uh, Gastelum handled all that, and then some ends up flooring Belfort a couple of times before uh, putting him down in the fashion that convinced referee Big John McCarthy to step in and, and call a stop to the action. Pretty impressive stuff from Kelvin Gastelum, who uh, is still not totally as committed, I think, as we would like him to be to middleweight. Uh, but what did you see from him in this fight, and what to you makes sense moving forward for uh, Kelvin Gastelum? Well, like you said, I mean, I was while I was not surprised he won the fight, I was surprised at how sharp he looked and just the efficiency with which he won it, because he didn't beat third-round Vitor Belfort. You know, we saw uh, Belfort show at least a little bit of a flash of, of that old guy, and, you know, not the not the old Belfort, the old, old Belfort. The old, old Belfort? Yeah, the old one, not the old one. Okay. Um, yeah, and, you know, that, that left hand, man, he, he put that on him a couple times, and as soon as he did, you just thought... Yeah, that's a punch that can knock a middleweight out. Yep. That that concern, at least, is not uh, too big of a problem for Kelvin Gastelum at middleweight. Um, you know, it is interesting to me that you go out there in too many syllables to remember Brazil. Uh, you knock out a Brazilian legend. You get on the mic, and you ask for another one, an even older Brazilian legend. You know, it seemed like the crowd actually, you know, they liked Kelvin Gastelum. That, that could go wrong for you. If you go out there, you beat up Vitor Belfort in Brazil, and then you say, hey, I hear Anderson Silva's still limping around somewhere. Give me him next. You know, maybe that that could backfire, but it seemed like maybe it actually will work. And I don't know. As soon as he said it, I a feeling of, like, inevitability kind of spread over me where I thought, okay, 
That seems like something I could totally imagine the UFC doing. Yeah, it would seem further out of the realm of possibility that they would book Kelvin Gastelum against Anderson Silva if they had not just booked Anderson Silva against Derek Brunson, right? Because then we could be like, oh, they would never throw Anderson Silva out there with one of these up-and-coming middleweights. Like, clearly they'll... They'll keep him out for the Vitor Belfort Legends League. Although I heard that Yoel Romero was on the Fortnite today talking about how he would like to face Anderson Silva for an interim middleweight championship, uh, which just you you cannot do that. No, don't do that. No, don't do any of that. Not the interim belt and not Anderson Silva versus Yoel Romero. And it's just a straight up homicide maker. Yeah. Weirdly enough, I feel like uh, Kelvin Gastelum calling out Anderson Silva made me realize how much more appropriate it would be to have Anderson Silva fight Vitor Belfort in his next fight, especially if uh, Belfort is going to hold to his declaration that his next fight in the UFC will be the last fight of his career. I know we're going to talk about that in round number two, but it would seem to me with Anderson Silva, uh, what you would want to do is is have him fight Vitor on June 3rd at that Rio de Janeiro card and then uh, kind of win, lose, or draw. I think he could fight George St. Pierre after that. Uh, you know, after George St. Pierre gets done with uh, his middleweight title tangle with Michael Bisping. Uh, but that, you know, if that's what happens, that leaves Kelvin Gastelum a little bit out there in the cold, although you start looking up and down that middleweight top 10, and I already mentioned Derek Brunson. Uh, right above Anderson Silva, Silva, you got Bobby Knuckles, Robert Whitaker, who's going to fight Jacare Souza uh, coming up at one of these events. And, you know, the, either the winner or the loser of that fight would seem to make sense to me for Kelvin Gastelum. Uh, who at 5'9", with like a 70 or 71-inch reach, is obviously, like you said, not the biggest middleweight in the world. But then you see him go out there uh, and pretty much run through a guy who used to be a light heavyweight champion, even though it was kind of a reduced and aging version of Vitor Belfort. Uh, at this point, I think we've seen all we need to see to say that Kelvin Gastelum is is best at this division, especially since the weight cut at 170 was so tough for him. And maybe it was just the camera angle from the first time that he knocked down Vitor Belfort in this fight with a straight left. But holy shit, did he look like he just about killed Vitor Belfort with that punch. Uh, and so, yeah, I th I'm starting to think Kelvin Gastelum might have some juice here, man, that he might be actually kind of special uh, in this division, although we'll just have to wait and see how, how it plays out. Do you think, though, that welterweight is just going to remain a white whale for him? That he, that he just won't be able to give up on that idea, in part because... You know, it wasn't entirely his idea to go up a division. It just, everybody else seems like they're way more into that than he is. Maybe. I mean, as the guy gets older, it's only going to get more difficult for him to make that weight cut, though. So you would think, like, even if he could go down and make 170 fairly reliably, it seems like it would be kind of a stopgap method for him, since I don't know how long he would be able to stay down there career-wise. Uh, and, and, you know, I think... Like we were talking, I think we talked about this last week, that Kelvin Gastelum, he is a small middleweight, and maybe he starts thinking about his own meeting with a guy like Yoel Romero or a guy like Luke Rockhold, who are big goddamn dudes at 185 pounds, and he, he kind of starts to doubt whether or not he can hang with those guys. But I don't know that that's an immediate concern for him. I think that uh, if I were him, I would at least want to test the waters against a mid-range contender and see how things went at that weight before I continued to kill myself trying to get down to 170. Either that or I would just get on the mic and say that I wanted to go on a Legends ass-whipping tour, try to line up four or five kind of easy wins for myself. 
Legend's ass whipping tour. I like the sound of that. That's what he said, right? On the mic, he said, my friend, he was talking about Chael Sonnen. He said, my friend started a Legend's ass whooping tour, and I'd like to finish the job for him. That's kind of how he called out Anderson Silva. Now, see, the Legends Ass Whipping Tour, I imagine you do it like it's a uh, a Motley Crue tour and you make a T-shirt that have the dates on the back, the dates in the, the cities and everything. You would think so, yeah. Yeah. Now, because those, now there's an MMA T-shirt I might actually buy. The Kelvin Gastelum Legends Ass Whipping Tour T-shirt. Yeah, and on the front, he could pull up Benil Dariush and uh, have a like a d- kind of poorly drawn picture of himself. Maybe use the same picture. Just kind of color in a, like a, a line beard actually, on there and... You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know it wasn't supposed to be Calvin Gastelum. You could take a, a damn Sharpie and add that beard on there, and you're in business. Uh, ben, you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll, we'll move on for this week? Sure. Uh, ben, you know that I loves me some old school Team Quest fighters. I know that. And so it put me on a trip down memory lane at UFC Fight Night 106, where following his uh, first round loss on this card, Josh Berkman indicated that he would retire from the sport of MMA started to get me to think about when I used to go down to uh, the community college outside of Portland. Yeah. And the Gresham, right? Yeah. And watch uh, Josh Berkman walk to the cage, walk to the ring, not to the cage. I should say uh, in a Jack Daniels t-shirt and go out there and beat up dudes like Casey who's cola. I believe probably at light heavyweight back in those days. <laughs> and I get halfway, you know, down my trip on memory lane. And then I find out 10 minutes later, Nah, don't worry about it. Josh Berkman's actually not retiring. He changed his mind. Are you fucking kidding me? Why are you trying to tear my heart out and then stuff it back in my chest, Josh Berkman? Ben, this is like, of all of the short MMA retirements, this may be the shortest one in history. Yeah, the only way you can really beat that is if you change your mind like mid-sentence. Like in the cage. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you called Brian Stan over, announce your retirement, let him interview the other guy, and then we're like, well, Brian, come back over here. <laughs> I actually changed my mind. Upon I'm further gonna, reflection. I'm going to keep going with this. Yeah. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Well, Chad, this week, I know you saw the, the women's bantamweight fight between Betch Cohea and Marion Renault. Can't in, get it out of my mind. In which Betch Cohea, you know, wins the first two rounds and then spends pretty much the entire third round getting her ass beat and barely survives that round. Face is all fucked up by the end of that round. And, you know, the horn is basically the only thing that gets her out of back control, like what she has been stuck in for like the last two minutes. And as soon as the horn sounds, she gets up and immediately does what Chad Dundas might refer to as an overly sexual uh, celebration dance, which yep. she is known to do. Yep. Yep, I would. Immediately after just getting beat up for the last five minutes. Uh, and in a fight that would eventually be ruled a majority draw on the basis of that third round ass beating. Are you fucking kidding me? You don't get to do that. You don't get to do the dance with the twerking and everything to celebrate right after you were just pummeled, mercilessly pummeled for the entirety of the third round. You know, if you think you won like a close decision, you're already kind of gambling by doing that, that dance to celebrate. But after... You just you get pulled up out of the ass kicking by the virtue of the time uh, expiring in the round. No, no, you do not get to do that dance. Then are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? You know what I liked here was that, uh, and maybe it was uh, the matter of fact way that the majority draw was was announced. Uh, but I liked that Marion, neither Marion or Marion Renault nor Betch Cohia realized at the in the moment that it was declared a draw. 
they were both standing there waiting for more scores to get announced. <laughs> like, nope, the, the next judge will have it for me. Well, and then when the UFC sent out the quotes afterwards and Betch Cohea, her quote was like, I won the first two rounds of this fight. I don't understand this result. And we were like, yeah, no, we, we see that you do not understand it. Although it is the right result. And the one judge who did not score a draw, which means that he scored every single round a 10-9 for somebody, even though, you know, some of them are close for Cohea and then one was an absolute runaway for Marion Renault. Um, we should find out what that judge was thinking and then we should give him just a swift kick in the ass. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, after his third loss in a row, with his 40th birthday looming in April, Vitor Belfort has declared that maybe it's time to retire after the next one, unless the UFC likes his idea to let him hang around and fight other old dudes, possibly with modified rules. So, I guess he's kind of hanging them up, hypothetically, in the uh, one possible version of the future. Now... Let's say for the sake of argument that this plan actually does proceed in that way, which I think would be kind of a best-case scenario outcome of all the potential options we see. Say Vitor Belfort gets one last fight in Brazil. Uh, you know, say it's like against a comparable opponent, comparable name. You know, maybe somebody like Anderson Silva, although he said he doesn't want to fight a Brazilian uh, in that one. But like, let's not get too picky. Uh Say he, say he even wins the fight and manages to go out there, everybody carrying Vitor on their shoulders out of the arena, 40-year-old Vitor retires. What will we make of Vitor Belfort's career at that point? Because this seems like a particularly tricky legacy he will leave behind. It sure does. Yeah, very complicated. And I think anybody who has listened to the Co-Main Event podcast for any amount of time will know that we have been somewhat tough on Vitor Belfort. I think deservedly. I think that he deserves whatever scrutiny we give him just because of, uh, you know, the heyday of TRT back in 2013 when Vitor, uh, won three fights in a row all by some manner of head kick, uh, and where he essentially became the poster boy for that controversial hormone replacement therapy and really, uh, bore the results in his physique, I guess you could say. Just looked, I mean, Normally, I think that those like side-by-side fighter comparison pictures that so often fly around the internet are unfair, and maybe they are unfair also in Vitor Belfort's case, but when you see the picture of TRT Belfort from 2012 or 2013 juxtaposed with the picture of 2017 Vitor Belfort, it is amazing to see how different he appears now than he did uh, when he was on that good stuff back in the day. Oh, and if you want to get really crazy, why not have some fun and throw 1997 Vitor Belfort in the mix? Right. Uh, he's a guy who, like Frank Mir, has transitioned through a number of different bodies uh, during his MMA career. But I also think, Ben, that it might be too easy to dismiss Vitor Belfort uh, because of the TRT era, because he was a guy who... Uh, had a blueprint on how to defeat him for basically his entire career uh, and, and kind of lived up to that like reputation throughout his entire fighting life. I think it would be easy to uh, 
to shortchange him because of that. But then I was also thinking about Vitor Belfort and the that loss to Randy Couture at UFC 15 back in 1997. And I started to think about Vitor Belfort as being one of the first guys, I think, that that indicated to us how deep this shit was going to be later. Because he, you know, he rolls into Uf, UFC 15. We've told this story a bunch of times. They put no known weaknesses no up on the screen. No known weaknesses. At the time, he was uh, 4-0 in his career, 3-0 in the UFC, and just looked like a goddamn juggernaut had been killing everyone in 17, 40, 50 seconds. And then Randy Couture does this thing where he dra- what he what we thought was deep water at the time, drags him into deep water 8 minutes and 16 seconds uh, before he beats him by TKO. And I feel like that, along with maybe a couple of Mark Coleman's early losses, was the first time that that I, as a fight fan, looked at MMA and thought, okay, there's a lot of science to this. Like, there is, there's a lot of nuance, and there are a lot of different ways to skin this cat. And so, not that that necessarily amounts to Vitor Belfort's legacy, but I think one of the things that makes me think of him slightly differently is as a guy who was one of the first guys to come along to make me realize that there's going to be levels to this shit, uh, yeah. which is kind of an interesting way to think about it, I think. And he was also one of those guys where when he burst on the scene extremely young and right away it was like, okay, well, here's a guy who, you know, a Brazilian dude who comes with that like jujitsu background that we kind of take for or for granted from all Brazilian fighters in that era and uh, he can box. And that was one of those first guys where you th- saw that and thought, yep, there's going to be like in the future a certain pairing of different skills that we're going to see, you know, the, where you think about it as like three disciplines and you need to pick two that you're going to be really good at. And he was one of those guys, one of the first guys to show up and really kind of show us what was possible there. And yet also, I think you can, if you look at the course of his career and again, a super long ass career, I mean, two decades of this shit, that is a long career. Uh, even when you factor in the, the performance enhancing, uh, gear and, Obviously, he was not the only one messing around with that because you and you can see that, too. And it's like when you look at the different body types and the different eras he fought in, you know, fighting in early UFC and then in Pride and like in that kind of era of MMA where people just kind of thought whatever you might have in your bloodstream, that was your business. And we weren't going to worry too much about that. Um, and he definitely seemed at least visually at times, like he was taking advantage of that. Then the TRT era comes along and he's the guy who becomes like one of the most infamous uh, advantage takers of that, kind of to the point when it seemed like even Dana White was stopping just short in press conferences of saying like, okay, look, dude, we all, you can't go out there looking like a damn action figure uh, when you're on this stuff because it's already controversial to begin with. And now the kind of post-TRT and USADA era, uh, you see that one too. So it's just like, his career has, in a lot of ways, mirrored the fluctuations of MMA, the, the ups and downs uh, across the board. You can just kind of follow it by following Vitor Belfort's career. Yeah, I think that's another good way to look at it. Just a lot of weird stuff also in the career of Vitor Belfort. The circumstances uh, by which he won the light heavyweight title from Randy Couture, uh, almost on a fluke punch that missed and ended up the seam of his glove slices the eyelid of Randy Couture, uh, which leads to a doctor's stoppage just 49 seconds into the fight, uh, which at the time was kind of deemed such a fluke that they turned right around and, and did the rematch just about six, seven months later uh, that same year, and Randy Couture comes back and, and beats him and 
uh, wins the title back from him. You got the uh, uh, the enormous cut that he opened up on the forehead of Marvin the Beastman Eastman uh, back at UFC 43, which I think is one of those highlight reel uh, moments, highlight reel cuts that that we will always see. And if you discount, you know the uh, uh, the TRT use and the the uh, the allegations, long allegations of PEDs use, and just say that you know Vitor Belfort beat guys like Rich Franklin, beat an, like an aging version of Matt Linland, beat Anthony Johnson for Christ's sake, beat Michael Bisping, beat Luke Rockhold, beat Dan Henderson. Uh, you kind of can't argue with some of the results, I guess, in Vitor Belfort's career, even though. I do think that a lot of that will be overshadowed by the TRT use and by the fact that he was a guy who uh, who we knew how to go about beating throughout much of his career and a guy who could kind of never escape that uh, escape that reputation. How about overshadowed by the very real possibility that this best case scenario will not take place, wherein he gets a good fight to end on and he actually does end on it? Because it seems like, while you hear him saying stuff like, well, my body's not holding up that well to the training anymore, I'm getting older, I don't know about fighting these young guys, and shit, yeah, man, if you're almost 40 and they want you to go out there and eat left hands from 25-year-old Kelvin Gastelum, that does not sound like a great future for you. Uh, and whether he can convince the UFC or not to take him up on this Legends League idea, which almost seems like a dangerous idea because you know that it would work and might be terrible in working. Uh, but especially when he's saying, like, I want to fight out this last fight on my contract, man, it is not too hard for me to imagine him then retiring for nine months until he shows up in Bellator. Right, that's the thing. Like, there is a Legends League, and it's, <laughs> right. it's over there in Bellator, and it makes perfect sense for Vitor to show up there. I was surprised... And I think pleasantly surprised to hear him indicate that he's thinking about retiring and to to say that he wants to fight out the last fight on this contract and that will be it for him. Because Vitor Belfort did seem like the kind of guy that you can imagine just doing it onward and onward into infinity, kind of. like Which in a way is admirable because to be fighting for 20 years and to still have the enthusiasm for it that he does and not want to give it up, I mean, Jesus Christ, all right, I guess... In a sense, that is inspiring. I also wonder if how much of it is just driven by you don't know who you're going to be and where your money's going to come from once this is over because it's like the only life you've ever lived. Yeah. Um, so I kind of do hope that they give him a, a fight on June 3rd in, in Rio uh, and that it is the kind of fight that, that Vitor will feel like he can walk away from after it's over. Uh like I said, I feel like Anderson Silva makes perfect sense there. Those guys have been talking about fighting each other again seemingly since the f the first time they fought. Uh, considering the point and ages that they are, the points they are at their in their you know careers right now, I think it makes sense. Uh, if you don't do Anderson Silva, you start looking around that middleweight division. I'm not sure that there are a lot of really stellar matchups that you would want to give Vitor Belfort in what might be his farewell fight. Uh, I see Uriah Hall down there, which seems like that could be a decent matchup, a guy who would give uh, Vitor the stylistic test that I think you would want to give him in his last fight. Uh, you'd think it would be a stand-up oriented striking fight, which I think is, is what Vitor wants. And uh, Uriah Hall, a guy who is himself coming off a three-fight losing streak. Uh, that makes sense to me. Other than that, you start looking around the middleweight division. I don't think you want to give Vitor somebody like Tim Boach right? In, <laughs> no. his, in his farewell fight. Not unless you're uh, just an asshole. No. You got smiling Sam Alvey down there who 
you know, makes a certain amount of sense, but uh, is also a, a, a guy you, you might say is kind of too dangerous for Vitor Belfort in his farewell fight. I don't know. So I said, that's what I said. Anderson Silva makes the most sense. I could see them doing Uriah Hall too, but we'll have to wait and see what happens. And maybe the, the million dollar question overshadowing everything else is whether or not that actually turns out to be Vitor Belfort's last fight. I would love to think he can go live the rest of his life in happiness. But like you said, I also would not be surprised to turn around six months, six months from now and see him fighting Chael Sonnen or Fanderlei Silva over in Bellator. And I would not be surprised to find us begrudgingly watching it. Oh, we would watch. We wouldn't like it, but we would watch. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, among all of the somewhat lackluster fight cards that the UFC feels like it's rolling out to begin 2017, UFC Fight Night 107, I think, stands out even among them, uh, coming to us on Saturday night, March 18th, from the O2 Arena in London, England. Uh, You look at this card, and it just seems like there's just not a lot happening. Hot garbage? Is that what to, how you might describe it? I believe you described. I believe you described better fights in the past as hot garbage, and this one, like you said, stands out. Is it is as if you were sifting through a landfill of hot garbage, and then you were walking by, and you felt more heat than normal coming off some garbage to your left, and you turned, and you you felt that this this garbage. This is considerably hotter than the other hot garbage surrounding you. And you looked closer and you realized it was a card headlined by Jimmy Manuel versus Beast in overtime. It does feel like if you were like flipping through the posters, if you had a big stack of all the UFC posters and you were flipping through the posters from 2017, it does feel like you would stop on Jimmy Manoa <laughs> and Corey Anderson and be like, wow, really? We headlined a show with Jimmy Manoa and Corey Anderson? Is this one real, or did they just make this one up like as a mock-up for Corey Anderson like on his birthday This or could something? be like one of those games you like to play where you try to have me find the fake fighter. This could be like find the fake event. I'm glad you mentioned it because I have just such a game coming up later, but it, there's a twist to it. Okay. Uh, yeah, and this one, I mean, I feel like I, I feel bad on behalf of of uh, your fans over there on the other side of the pond because this one felt like a card where they put it together, basically announced they're having an event, and the British fans were just like, yes, please, give me just whatever you got. UFC's coming to town. Let me snatch up some tickets. And they did, and then the UFC you know, was kind of like putting off announcing a headliner, and then we're like, oh, it'll just be this. And it felt like, okay, we're not even trying to pretend we're not taking these people for granted at this point. The paper boy? The Paperboy versus Beast in Overtime? <laughs> uh, I, from a selfish standpoint, you look at this thing and you see the four-fight main card and you think, oh, well, it's, we can get in and out of this thing in a couple hours. At least Well, it's a fight that. pass event, right? So the whole thing could just go at that blistering pace, which is I really appreciate. The best thing I can say about this card is that it's a fight pass event. The, uh, the most interesting fight on this card is the co-main event, don't you think? Gunnar Nelson against Alan Joban? Yeah, and I will watch just pretty much anything Gunnar Nelson's in. Yeah, well, you got Alan Joban coming in off that win over Mike Perry that he had at UFC on Fox. 
Uh, Gunnar Nelson, it still feels like Gunnar Nelson is trying to rebound from those high-profile losses against Damian Maya and Rick Story, even though he beat Brandon Thatch and then beat Albert Tumanov to kind of uh, uh, put a sandwich around that latest loss of Damian Maya. It does still feel like uh, a lot of Gunnar Nelson's hype has cooled off from the point when he was 13-0-1 and felt like a real up-and-comer in that uh in that division, but yeah, but come on, I mean, he's still he's what he's 28, and you lost to Demian Maya. Man, I'm not gonna rake you over the no, coals I, for that. I hear you, legitimate loss. I'm just saying he's kind of he's trying to put it back together in terms of of recapturing that momentum and that hype. Uh, and Joe Ban comes in off his big win. This feels like good matchmaking to me. It feels like a fight that has a a, a it could be exciting and it could be a good matchup of styles. So, like, if you're looking for diamonds in the rough on the UFC 107 fight card. Uh, Gunnar Nelson versus Alan Joban is going to be okay with me. Yeah. Well, and also, uh, you know, I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Brad Pickett taking another chance, another shot at trying to get that retirement fight in. Yeah. And this one almost fell apart on him a week before it happened. They had to put uh, Marlon Vera in there after Henry Briones just, uh, just dropped out a couple days ago. Right. Like the, the, this, this thing just is kind of coming together at the last minute, which kind of makes you feel bad for Brad Pickett, right? The, uh, Although in a sense maybe it maybe it fits uh, with the overall feeling of the sport uh, that to to have your retirement fight and get your opponent switched at the last possible minute. Well, yeah, it's kind of like though if you're you're trying to give notice at your job and you're going to be like, okay, my last day is going to be next Friday, and then you know projects and shit just keep coming up. Next thing you know, you, it's been nine months, and you're just like, Jesus Christ, can I just get on with my life already? Um, I also I gotta imagine after this much time to think about it, it gotta feel like there's a lot of weirdly a lot of pressure for it being a retirement fight, uh, especially there in London. You want to go out there and you want to put on one hell of a show, uh, and yet a part of you has got it like as you're leading up to the fight has got to be wondering is this shit gonna actually happen this time? Yeah, uh, so maybe Brad Pickett, you just you just kind of want to get in there. I don't know if you want to get in there and get it over with, but uh, maybe you do want to. Uh actually ha- have the retirement fight and, and move on with your life. You also uh, got Joe Duffy on the prelims. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, Joe Duffy. Can't get excited about Joe Duffy, huh? That's what you're telling me? I mean... It, it would help if Joe Duffy himself seemed a little bit more excited about his ongoing presence in the UFC. Hasn't he said that he's bailing after this, or he wants to bail? Uh, well, to be honest with you, I haven't been following the soap opera of Joe Duffy's career here. Yeah, I mean, he said that basically he was trying to get a... Uh, a better contract that he likes better, and he like has been kind of sitting time out. Time to do that, my friend. <laughs> yes, uh, kind of. I've been sitting out for a long time, uh, and I, frankly, I would think a guy like Joe Duffy would be somebody you'd really want to keep around because he's an exciting fighter to watch. He seems like somebody who could have uh, an interesting future in the sport. Um, and then he shows up here on the the prelims of a fight pass card, uh, but then I guess it's a distinction between two different internet streams that they make you click off one and click off on another. So maybe it's not that big a deal. Um, but I don't know. I feel like I could easily remain interested in the, the travails of Joseph Duffy's life. Yeah. Him, uh, making it sound like he might split the UFC kind of makes him more, more interesting in a weird way. Uh, you have some kind of trivia based game that you wanted to lay out here for me or no? Uh, it's part of my just saying stuff. Oh, it is. Okay, yeah. so we might as well save that for the very end. That's right. Do you want to? Should we just do that now? Just, just roll into it. I, I don't feel like there's a whole lot of more points I wanted to make. I, I already said hot garbage, right? Yeah, okay. more than once. Okay. All right. Then other than that, yeah, no. I'm, I, think, I believe we called Jimmy Manuel the paper boy one more time, which yeah. is, uh, this is basically we hit the high spots of what we wanted to do. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. No, I, I, I got nothing else. Did we mention Beast in Overtime? Did we say that? Beast in Overtime? We Corey did. Anderson now, Beast in Overtime. Yeah, we said that. Okay. Um, okay, so my Just Saying stuff. You might One thing we did not mention so far is that my dude, heavyweight Timothy Johnson, okay, yeah. is on this one. Yes. Uh, taking on uh, Daniel Omeliozunzuk. Nailed it. Nailed it. Um, and we have remarked in the past how Timothy Johnson came to the UFC after a fight career that took place entirely in the state of North Dakota. Right. He did not... Which makes him feel like one of our brethren, almost. Well, and then when you see the guy, he's pretty... He looks like somebody where you're just like, man, you are an honorary state trooper just by looking like that. He looks like a dude that you can imagine pumping gas next to you at the local uh, holiday gas station. You would look over and see Tim Johnson. Yeah, a big-ass truck down at the noons. Uh, And... Uh, and also on Twitter once when I made a remark to that effect about how Timothy Johnson looks like the kind of guy you'd ask to come over and help you put up some drywall. And he was like, oh, yeah, no, I'd totally do that. Um, so Timothy Johnson right there in the zone of my guys. Yeah. Uh, and his entire career, Fargo, North Dakota, with one exception fight in, in Newtown, North Dakota, that was beat down at Four Bears 11, the okay. Four Bears Casino out there. Uh, and then when he comes to the UFC, they basically – quickly turned him into an international man of mystery. Uh, and you're, are you looking at his career right now? You're no, going to ruin it if I'm you're not. looking at this thing. I'm looking thing. at the okay. uh, Fight Night 107 card. Okay. Now, he fights suddenly in a lot of international locales. This one uh, going to be an, another one for him in London, England. Uh, I am going to name some cities Uh-oh. that that Timothy Johnson has fought in, some international cities that he's fought in since he joined the UFC, except one of them, is not a city that Timothy Johnson Okay, wait, in. but is it going to be a real city? It's going to be a real city. So I just have to guess which city is not a city that Tim Johnson fought in? That's right. That, that is... seems incredibly specific to me. Well, are you ready to play? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Belfast, Northern Ireland. That's a place Zagreb, where the UFCs. Croatia. Okay. Adelaide, Australia. Uh-huh. Nashville, Tennessee. Well, okay, I'm I'm going to cheat a little bit here, but you looked at me when you said Adelaide, Australia. You looked at your computer when you said the names of the other cities. So I'm going to say Adelaide, Australia, Ben, is the one where Tim Johnson has not fought. God damn you. Yes. Man, you got to... I gotta, you gotta work, work on, on your poker face. I forgot over there, that man. I, I forgot it's that this is radio for the listeners, but not for you. You can still see. I me. can see you, oh. and I know when you look at your screen and and sound out Zagreb. Okay, right? let's. Do you want to play again? Yes, I do. Is there more? <laughs> is there more to do? No, that's it. See, I thought you were going to try to get me to guess how old Timothy Johnson is because I feel like thirty-two is kind of like shockingly young for that guy, right? But it again, it's the mustache. It's the state trooper mustache. Gives you a little extra gravitas. It really does. And if I told you that he was born in Lamberton, Minnesota, you would you might think I was making that up. Well, I would think if you're born in Lamberton, man, you probably got nothing else to do but drive over to the Four Bears Casino and fight somebody of a Saturday night. Probably were just there uh, playing slots. They, they threw you in the cage. Once they saw it, they got a look at you and they thought, this guy needs to be fighting at the Four Bears. Pretty sure that uh, I've seen some Montana fighters. Oh, yeah. Make the trek over and fight at the Four Bears. Pretty sure uh, Tim Welch has gone over there, beat somebody up at the Four Bears. 
probably a heck of a good time. We got to get over there sometime. Well, Ben, uh, this week, I'm just saying, as we found out on Saturday night during the Fight Night 107 broadcast, Marion Renault is a high school gym teacher. Huh. Which I guess reminds me once again that it seems like the UFC is basically like the only professional sport that routinely gets broadcast on na- national television where, uh, Pretty much week in and week out, you will hear the announcers casually mention that one of the professional athletes you are about to watch do her thing is also a high school gym teacher as like a side hustle. And we just kind of take it in stride. We're just like, oh, yeah, high school gym teacher. That makes sense. The UFC is the side hustle, my friend. (laughs) So uh, I guess this week I'm just saying that. But I also want to add this additional just saying stuff that I'm just saying now that we know that Marion Renault is a gym teacher, how is her nickname the Belizean Bruiser? Blasian? It's, yeah, Belizean. Oh, she is a, earlier you told me Blasian, and that sounded awesome. Well, she is a descendant of the country of Belize. Okay, that's and different. That's a so, different thing. The Belizean Bruiser. How is her nickname that and not the gym teacher? I'm just saying. Just saying. Marion, the gym teacher Renault, that sounds is... like somebody I could get, you know, I could root for. Yeah. So, just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you all the stuff that happens at this fabulous card uh, from London, England. And then I believe we have a couple of weekends off, although they're going to tuck a Bellator in there somewhere. King Mo and Rampage are going to do the damn thing. I mean, after the Paperboy versus Beast in overtime, they want to give you a couple weeks to Yeah, to get a decompress. couple weeks to cool off before yeah, we get into, your breath. into UFC 210. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. See, maybe that is one of the good things, though, about the UFC being a side hustle for a bunch of people who have to have full-time jobs is that then you can just, if you're struggling to find a nickname, you can just go with whatever your real job is. Yeah, you could be, like, Larry the Uber Driver Clarkson. (laughs) There's, I mean, I would not be surprised. Somebody had got to be an exterminator or something, and that fits right in the bug man. Yeah. (laughs)